What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin. Today's episode Use Your Soft Skills. My guest today is a serial founder known for many things. From building his parents' New Jersey liquor store into a $60 million brand in five years, to founding a social media agency, to being chairman of a close to $300 million parent company of nine brands. He is a social media phenomenon in himself with 35 million fans across platforms. And along the way, he's written five best-selling books and has a new book on the way called 12 and a Half. He's CEO of VaynerMedia and chairman of VaynerX, Gary Vaynerchuk also known as Gary V. I recently wrote a feature on him for our November issue of Inc. Magazine, and I interviewed him for the Inc. 5000 Vision Conference, where this was recorded. Gary has a couple of fascinating things going on right now, including his new NFT business, which I ask him about, and I dig in with him into themes of his new book, which include how to balance all your important personality traits that contribute to your leadership abilities and how to work on the ones you might be lacking. Also, the new importance of kindness in business, including what he's calling kind candor. You know, I think for all of us, the pandemic was such a big thing. It changes your patterns. And one of the changes in my pattern during that time, it, it was just I had a lot more time to think about why the things that were working for me were working, why the content that I was putting out around empathy or kindness or accountability or these other subject matters were resonating and creating more questions. And really, why did I see so many people fail and succeed during the beginning of the pandemic, which is adversity exposes truth. And what I saw was that a lot of organizations that were able to thrive were able to thrive predicated on culture, you know, between pandemic and George Floyd and many other things, a lot of pressure on the culture of organizations and just got me into my feelings. And I had forever believed that empathy and kindness and patience and some of these softer skills were at the foundation of my success. But I was just ready to talk about how I use these ingredients in a mix, really, to be honest with you, I think I think about ambition and patience all the time. But for a lot of people, when you see those two words, they come as contradictions. And for me, they have incredible balance when I'm cooking my career. And so I just felt ready, to be honest with you, and had the space to do it. It was a book that was kind of always in me, but the opportunity arose to write it, and I jumped at the chance. 
Yeah, yeah. Let's back up just a tiny bit. Um, the, the 12 and a half, that is the title of the book. Those are the ingredients that you refer to, right? Can you talk a little bit more about a few of those ingredients um, in, in a little more detail? Everybody's watching. You know, what my, my hypothesis is, incredibly, there's definitely more than 13 personality traits that are quintessential to being important. These are the ones that most speak to me. Now, I call it 12 and a half because candor, and I call it kind candor, is something that I've struggled with, which surprises people because Gary Vee, the one on stage in an interview like this on a podcast, very comfortable with candor. Um, but Gary Vaynerchuk, who I am day to day, you know, very optimistic, doesn't love confrontation, believes in honey over vinegar. And a lot of my missteps through my career were my inability to be candorous. And I talk about that pretty openly in the book. But these 13 ingredients, when mixed together in different scenarios, because it's not just empathy, it's not accountability, it's not tenacity, it's not self-awareness, it's not curiosity by itself. But what happens when you mix accountability with empathy? Just think about that. When you start most things with accountability, then empathy, imagine why the conversation or decision you're about to make is going to be productive. You're coming from a place that allows for it. And so I talk a lot about why these are the traits that I think are going to be quintessential for business success. I think the world is going into options for people and the organizations that are the healthiest, the best. And and by the way, that doesn't mean foofy, foofy, you know, like everything's fine. Who cares? Like, no, no, tenacity, ambition. You know, there's a lot in this book. I, I still believe in work ethic tremendously. But um, those are some of the traits that I go into, why they matter. And then I go into a lot of business scenarios, both for employees, managers, owners, investors, um, entrepreneurs, and pretend scenarios that are very common day and how these human traits play out. And then some exercises to advance your self-awareness or your accountability, which, you know, I think we can all agree is challenging. Some of this stuff is very, you know, non-tangible and, you know, whether it's therapy or meditation or whatever can create a perspective change, I think is powerful. And, you know, I'm hoping that this book does that for a lot of business people. Yeah, that's amazing. It does seem to me like we are at this very transformative moment in business where, um, so many workers have been working from home and there's almost been no choice but to bring a little bit more of your your real self to work. Um, yes. And that empathic leadership seems like it it is having a moment, um, that idea. For you, um, has it been a transformation uh, over the years or or has it always been there and just been sort of, you know, hidden under that surface of loud, brash social media, Gary Vee? Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's been a point of contention for a lot of people that care about me. They're like, man, you know, or, or pleasant surprise or lots of other things. I, you know, my ability to be empathetic to the judgment of the stage me who drops some F-bombs and things of that nature has allowed me to not be overwhelmingly passionate in changing what comes natural to me. When I take this, you know, if this was being done physical, like I've done in DC and other times this event, something happens when there's... 3,000 people in the audience, that puts me into Eddie Murphy, Chris Rock, Randy the Macho Man Savage mode. And I am a human being. I have feelings. I don't love being underestimated or considered not as good at my craft because I have that. On the flip side, 
I'm willing to take the criticism or the underestimation because I know that the entertainment style creates captivity, which allows for the steak to be delivered under the guise of the sizzle. I'm very passionate and very aware that 10% may be completely checked out to hearing what I'm saying because I drop an F-bomb. But I know, because I've lived the game for 15 years, many more are paying attention because they're being entertained instead of looking at their phone or dazing or thinking about a business meeting. And in that hour on stage or during a podcast, once I get that attention, which is the asset, I'm then able to hopefully bring some value in some of the, the substance. So it's always been there. It probably even got accelerated a little bit more because my father' management style was very different than mine. You know, he grew up in the Soviet Union under very rough circumstances. So his relationship to his employees was very different. And I already came in an empathetic leader because my mother raised me in a very emotionally intelligent framework. And so not only did I come to the party as a 14-year-old, 16-year-old, 18-year-old in my family business with all of that, I also probably overreacted and overcompensated for a lot of things my dad was doing that I didn't believe in. And that got me off to my start. And it's always been there. It's always been a strength of mine. And I've just done more communicating about it over the last five years. And now it's culminating with this book. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. The the mix of both parents' traits and the mix of that kind of power of the attention asset and the empathic leadership is really fascinating. I want to talk a little bit more about that the attention asset that you mentioned um, on social media, the the birth of the social web. That's when your presence uh, in business and on social media really took off. Um, but we've learned so much over the past few years about some of the charms and harms of kind of shouting the loudest online, right? Sure. Um, what have you learned uh, about the kind of the power of social amplification and uh, some of the ways, I mean, you, you know how it can succeed, right? You've built businesses on it, but how can it also harm and, and how do we move on from that? You know, in my earliest content, I talked about the social web being the challenge to the newspaper, to the radio, to the television. You know. Hitler used media, and so did Gandhi. Martin Luther King used media, and so did, you know, Stalin. I was a very poor student, but the only class that I was very good at was history. And maybe that is why it all came very natural to me. In the way that you asked the question, it's kind of interesting to me. It's I'm going through the same feelings today with NFTs. From day one, I thought that the mediums were the most important thing I'd ever seen because I thought that when there was a coup in a country, before they even went, or at the same time, they would go after the emperor or the president or the czar, they would go after the media. They'd go to the radio station or the television station. I always thought that social media would become an incredibly powerful tool. And I thought people were incredibly naive to think that it was about who's having a pizza or walking the dog, who cares? This was the digitalization of communication. You know, the green movement in Iran, we saw early on, like, you know, it was very obvious that this was an incredibly powerful medium that I thought had major ramifications on society, the rebranding of everything from Dunkin' Donuts to democracy. And 
You know, I haven't been overly taken aback. I believe that both Obama and Trump were completely, completely in office based on how they were navigating content on social. So this has been a phenomenon that I'm incredibly comfortable with because it exposes human truth. I don't think we fix the things people are worried about by blaming platforms. I think we start taking a real step back in humanity and talking about the things I talked about in this book, which is if you're incapable of being compassionate, if you are driven by fear, if you are inherently insecure, you will try to tear down others. And we did that when there was no television, radio, or internet. And we will do it when we live in VR worlds or in outer space. It is a human truth, which is why we have to get to the seed, not to the layers that we focus on. Right. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, But I want to ask you a little bit about that future. You mentioned NFTs. uh, You mentioned living in VR world, maybe the metaverse. What kind of things do business owners need to be looking forward to now? What's Web3? What is... What is going on with the next uh, wave of things that you're watching unfold online and, uh, and that you're focusing on? You know, Web3 is here. It's early. It's like Internet 95, and a lot of business owners were able to wait 12, 15 years before they got serious and still didn't go out of business. But I think you and I and everybody who's watching can agree they left some opportunity on the table. And so for everybody who has regrets or more thoughtful understanding of why they passed on social and all the opportunity that it created. Web two, Web three is an incredible opportunity. There's not a single business that's watching right now that won't be affected by the NFT infrastructure. Every ticket, I mean, this conference, this conference in a decade, the ticket will be an NFT, you know? And so memberships, tickets, the fashion industry, the reason people wear logos and communicate who they are through their goods are gonna go digital. We now live in a world where people are willing to buy something that is digital and can prove that they own it and it functions as owned, which was not available to us during the internet era, but is available to us during the blockchain web three decentralized server era. This will change the world. This will absolutely change the world. And so here's what I would say where we're at right now. Just like if it was 1995, when I saw the internet and believed in it more than anything, I didn't have this platform to tell everybody this, but it's what I told my 25 friends. Let's spend 100 hours learning. And so most of this audience is dismissing NFTs as a fad, even worse, maybe even as a scam, as beanie babies. And everyone's caught up in the art and the collectibles, no different than everybody was caught up in Twitter and thought of it as the pizza and the walking the dog phenomenon. And I'm like, it's so much more than that. Same here. These are digital assets that are proven ownership that also have smart contracts underneath them. People will buy their home through an NFT. They'll buy the NFT, which represents the home. This is going to become common practice. People's wallets and what NFTs they hold will become the new social media platforms. They will become the way we express ourselves to each other. This is a humongous human consumer shift that every B2B and B2C company watching here over the next decade will be affected by. And if you are watching this right now, you are a true business leader. You are in this game. And and I implore you to not just dismiss and say no like many other innovations and spend the 15 to 20 hours to understand what NFTs are really about and why 
human beings are going to buy them as utility and as communication. Right. And I mean, you would know you actually have a conference scheduled that has NFTs as tickets. <laughs> That's right. My, my project, Be Friends, my macro strategy is to establish a Disney Pokemon intellectual property that I can build into television, film, video games, toys, and all the things that Transformers and Pokemon and Harry Potter and Star Wars do. But in the short term, thank you for calling that out. I put in the smart contract that these original Disney cells, these fossils, these the establishment, the IP, these collectibles, this art, I put in there functionally a ticket to a three-year conference, right? May of next year in U.S. Bank Stadium in Minnesota where the Vikings play, I'm going to host a very meaningful business conference. And the only way to get in is to own a friend. And so people start understanding that these assets are really economies. You as the issuer are the central bank. You're creating functional value on top of them. You can start with that like I did with the conference. You can add to it by just announcing that I will do this or this will happen if you have this. And I'm, uh, I'm incredibly excited about it. When we come back, I'll talk with Gary about what he thinks leaders are doing wrong. But first, a quick break. Now, before we go, Gary, let me ask you um, a little bit more about the premise of your book. Uh, I love when you're talking about kind candor, candor as the the main kind of one of those 13 traits that you are still personally working on. Um, And there's so much of the book that's sort of founded in the idea of business has been done kind of wrong in a lot of ways. Uh, You know, in the past, we're moving into a new era. What has been kind of done wrong um, in business? What are we still doing wrong? And what what can we we all kind of correct? Yeah. Thank you. We, in some weird way, glamorized how someone like a Steve Jobs treated people. And people subconsciously thought that that was cool and what you should do. I, Christine, I will tell you exactly why this book was written. I had a small group of friends during the 2007 to 2010 era that I felt subjectively were overly affected by this narrative that jobs got the best out of people by being this guy. And I watched with my own eyes. I don't need theory. I don't need people telling me stories. Humans that I thought were incredibly kind start to develop a management style that was incredibly not. I'm no Steve Jobs, but I have enough of a platform right now that I know that there's a lot of youngsters that think I'm cool. And if I can lay my hypothesis down of how you should treat people in a business, that kindness doesn't mean people walk all over you. I'm incredibly kind. There's not anybody walking all over me when people are like, oh, Gary, I don't like your kindness thesis. I'm kind. And guess what it gets me? Everyone takes advantage of me. I'm like, "Mm -mm, it's just not true. We need to change some of these narratives, right? And so, again, what I'm proud of is I tried to very hard show a balanced reality of business. You could be kind all you want. If everyone's entitled because you lack candor and it's too fluffy in your you know, company and then you can't make payroll or you go out of business, guess what? There is no company. So there's incredible needs around tenacity and ambition and execution, but we need a complete recorrection of finding balance where we can have good, but it doesn't have to skew into entitlement. There isn't middle. And I think, you know, in our society right now, we're very red and blued out politically, which bleeds into every part of our lives. 
And basically, I could have called this book purple, right? It shouldn't be primary red. It shouldn't be primary blue. The magic is in the purple. And there's a long way to go in politics. But in business, I think we can move fast. Because what's cool about business is it's binary of like short and medium-term results. I believe that the managers, employees, and CEOs, entrepreneurs that read the book, if they tweak one part and they can taste, Christine, the impact. Wait a minute. People aren't resigning here as fast. Wait a minute. Sally worked late. She used to leave at five all the time. Maybe because she's happy now and feels a kinship to the organization and is willing to stay to 6.30 this day. But when she felt like she was being mistreated, she couldn't wait to leave at five. And oh, by the way, her nine to five wasn't super productive either. I'm, I feel like everything is my responsibility. Everything my employees do is because of what I do. And I believe it's based on this stuff. And I believe a lot of people will have much more money. Let me say it that way. Fun way to say it. You will make more money by having a nicer thing. And that is something I believe in. And I think it's going to happen whether I exist or not, whether this book does well or not. This is an inevitable because companies are going to be forced into it because employees have too many options. They could become influencers. They could become NFT artists. The world is moving. More options. And so the audacity of business that people had to swallow because they had to pay bills is going to melt away. And not only is this a requirement, it's an opportunity. There are businesses that can double overnight if they decide to change their culture and eliminate fear. Nobody's, you can trick people into be motivated by fear in the short term. It is not sustainable. And we need to change that. I love that, Gary, that finding balance as a key to not just happiness, but financial success too, um, and a, a strong lasting company. That's really important. And, and thank you so much for joining me today and for all of your thoughts. Thank you. so fascinating to speak with Gary about how he did his research and then dove headfirst into NFTs and did so in a way that nurtured his own fans and his own community. And in ways, it isn't really a departure from the way Gary Vee has done things in the past. But what really stuck with me most after speaking with him was how thoughtful and introspective he got when I asked him about what seemed like contradictions in his leading with kindness and empathy and his well-known brash communication style. He admits he's a showman. He knows what his audience wants, and he doesn't want to lose their attention. But when he's leading, not entertaining, there's a different force at work for Gary. It's a push and pull and something he's still working on. Leading with honesty, with candor as he calls it, and simultaneously, kindness. That's something we can all work on, and learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow us wherever you are listening. And that'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you have a friend who would love our show, please send them a link to your favorite episode. And if you have any ideas for founders you'd love to hear from, drop us a note at whatiknow at inc.com, or you can let me know directly on Twitter at Legorio. Our producer, 
who is 34,999,523 followers away from matching Gary's social media presence, is Joshua Christensen. Our production assistant is Blake Odom, and our audio editor is Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Legorio-Chapkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.